There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix on May the 6th, 2010. For newcomers, go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, scroll down and bookmark all the other sites I've got there because I've got trouble again with the com. And if you bookmark these sites, you can always download the latest shows for free, all the audio shows. Now remember while you're at it that all the sites listed there have English translations of the shows as well, uh, for, for transcripts that is. Um, and you can download those transcripts or print out and pass them out to your friends. If you go into Alan Watt Sentinel, Sentinel.eu, that's also on that site, you can get uh, the transcripts in the other languages of Europe as well. And, of course, the, the Sentinel site also has the same audios as all the rest, so they all carry the audios. And while you're there, you can, you can also see the books I have for sale, CDs and discs. If you can buy them, it might help you to come out of your linear thinking and see how the world really works. And believe you me, it's a, a drastic change from your conditioning and how you've been taught to see it. And you'll see the cons, you'll be able to see through the cons, and you'll realize that most of the society and the way it's run and the structure of society, as it's taught to you and spouted at you by the media and the moneybag men every day, is all a big giant con. It truly is a big con. And the more complex to try to make it sound and scientific, the, the less you're inclined to try to delve in and understand it. That's what they count on, in fact. You can also, as I say, um, order the books through personal checks from U.S. to Canada. Uh, outside Canada, personal checks, unfortunately, are not accepted to Canada. But from the U.S. they are. In the U.S. you can also get an international postal money order uh, to Canada. That's accepted here as well. Outside the U.S. and Canada, they're not. They used to be, but they're all stopped now. But since Canada and America, uh, the U.S. are all really one country now, there's no big deal about to even share the same area code, one. And you can pay by Western Union, money, gram, cash for the books, or you can donate through PayPal or use the donation PayPal button, send the appropriate amount and a separate email with your order, and I'll get it out to you. So that goes for the rest of the world as well. Same deal, MoneyGram, Western Union, Cash, or PayPal for ordering or donating. Just send a separate email along with the donation, and I'll get your order out to you. Lots of folk get the disc burned because they don't use computers, or they used to, a lot of them, and they've gone off computers. They play the CDs on their, their players at home. Uh, you can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. The postal code is P for Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I'll get in touch with you back, whichever method you prefer. As I say, lots of folk have gone off computers because they've had the wisdom to realize that it really it's all up there to, to track and trace and 
do your personality profiles on. That's really the reason they gave it to the public. And to be honest with you, people have asked me as well, even mainstream shows have been on, does the computer and the Internet really help people in their understanding? And it's a bit of yes, but a lot of no as well, because the big boys made sure there'd be so much uh, conflicting information put out on the same subjects that it'd be very hard, even more difficult for the average person to find the truth on any particular thing. And you can certainly fascinate the public by giving them lots of truth, lots of sci-fi mixed with it, or um, supposed spiritualism and so on. Uh, that fascinates them, but it really keeps them going in loops. They're all intentional folks. That's how they run your minds. They're not there to free you. Back with more after this break. Cutting through the matrix. I've spoken many times before about the big system that runs this world, and I've read from the, the various textbooks put out by professors who were involved, for instance, with the Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Institute for International Affairs, the same thing really, and, um, and their branches across the world through all the British Commonwealth countries and how they wanted, on behalf of the bankers who already ruled the world, the international bankers, on behalf of the bankers, to bring in a system, a society, a world society, where they would be in charge of everything. Uh, from their point of view, and you can understand their point of view too, they were the only ones, really, these, these hereditary families, that had kept a kind of history of the world from, for thousands of years, on buying, lending, trading, all commerce and how it works, all the stuff to do with debt and interest, etc., wars and what happens with wars, who gets paid afterwards, how can you get your money back if you've lent to a country that's defeated, etc., etc. And at the turn, really, the end of the, 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 the 19th, uh, 1900s, uh, 1800s and the start of the 1900s, they set up their institutions to attempt to try and bring the world under their control. And Professor Carl Quigley, uh, being the historian for this group, and they have historians in every generation, they have their own private archives, uh, he was allowed into them to update their archives, and he, he had access to their histories. And he was all for what they were doing. He believed, too, that the people were just too dumb and stupid and illiterate to, to manage their own lives. He also believed that if you left it to the up-and-coming uh, general psychopaths, the general ones as opposed to the economic ones, they would want to become very important military people and conquer by conquest and looting countries and basically bring in a lot of disorganization, especially for commerce and so on. And so their plan was, since they were the historians who understood the world better and how it functions through economies, then they would take the world over themselves. Um, it's interesting too that the same bankers who started it up, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, that it started off really as the Milner Group, Lord Milner and Rhodes Society, Cecil Rhodes Society combined with Lord Rothschild as the, the, the co-founder basically of both parties. Um, they'd already been lending money for, uh, to countries for centuries in Britain and other countries for warfare purposes. And that was their big 
problem was how can you ensure that a defeated country would pay back the loans they'd borrowed from these same bankers. They wanted international courts to be set up to arbitrate and work out deals so that the bankers would get paid back. That was one of the first reasons, really, one of the real reasons behind the setting up of the League of Nations, which became the United Nations. So they would would have a two-pronged attack. One was to take over by pure centralization of government, so that meant putting their own people into governments in all member countries. And, and centralizing uh, the, the control, standardizing all the laws throughout any particular country, taking away the rights from local areas or, or local states, as you say, uh, and federalizing them. And then eventually they would, through the United Nations, they would bind them by treaties, ever-deepening treaties, until they could never back out. And then also they wanted them to establish central banks. That was a must-be They already had it planned for Europe. It might take them a hundred years, they said, to establish central banks throughout the whole of Europe, which would then combine into a giant central bank as they at the same time got the politicians to join in a a bloc or a union. And that's what they have in Europe. They have a a European Union and they each have their central banks, but, but they're all responsible to an even bigger central bank for Europe. That, in turn, will be responsible to the World Bank. Now, it's really a small group of men at the top, the world bankers, uh, really 12 banking families who are the lenders to every country, every major country in the world. It's a hard thing for us to comprehend uh, that they have the rights to basically um, issue really checks to countries to give them permission through the central banking systems and the central banking systems, remember, are privately owned, but the same boys in the, in the World Bank control the heads of those central banks. It's one big consortium. That's how it really works. And now they're going for the big push, and that is to uh, standardize the world uh, into giving the, the World Bank, their World Bank, with the IMF and the Bank for International Settlements, total power over everybody's bookkeeping. In other words, they're taking, taking over the bookkeeping of the planet. That's their goal. And what we're experiencing right now is a, a, a man-made recession or depression, depends if they want to go far enough with it, to bring all the countries under the heel to shock the people enough into literally giving up the last bit of sovereignty they have. It's kind of like someone coming, it's kind of like your boss at your work coming into your home and going over your own bookkeeping to make sure that you're spending your money wisely. That's what they want to do to all the countries. And when the IMF comes in, that's what it does, literally. And they all work for the same group at the top. There's nothing independent about them whatsoever. And they're all part of one big long-term plan, which is culminating right now in its final, at least this part of the final plan, which is consolidating all of the world's markets, all of the world's money and financial systems and lending and borrowing through their own particular World Bank. You understand the United Nations was set up during World War II. It transformed from the League of Nations to the United Nations. And at the end of World War II, they were very bold about their their 
projections as to where they were going with it. They really wanted to push through the United Nations as being more than just a, a place where countries went to uh, negotiate or air arguments and come to solutions. It was more than a bargaining table. It was meant just to be set up as the embryo of world government with all these financial institutions and military institutions eventually underneath it. And that's what they're pushing for today. This lesson here is to teach us, wow, we, we can't manage it ourselves. Look, we're in such a mess. Uh, we've got to go through the experts at the top, and they will dole out uh, the cash to every region, as I like to call them, blocks and nations. And we will simply take what we're given, and we'll be told to manage the books ourselves. Now, the same thing was to go for the Department of Agriculture at the United Nations. Their goal, and it states it in their mandate, if you look it up yourself, is to eventually be in charge of the entire world's food supply. And they will dish out portions to every country and region. And eventually you will be forced in those regions to maintain your population numbers by whatever means that you deem necessary. That really is their mandate, all to go through the United Nations. NATO, as we know, NATO is just a branch of the United Nations. It's a military branch. It's their attack branch for countries that don't quite uh, go along with certain things or they won't go along fast enough. Uh, NATO has been to other countries where they won't establish uh, their central banks or they're trying to keep more sovereignty, and they, they pummel them into the ground. Under the, the UN auspices, they also get into the Middle East and standardize them too. We don't realize that the Middle East have a different customs, at least they have had up until now, different customs of handling money. Their religion is their tradition. Their religion is their way of life. And uh, they didn't have the central banking system with borrowing money from the world bankers. And that's a no-no. you got to have a lot of debt or you, you, you have no profit to the world bankers. They live on debt, you understand. Bankers live on debt. They don't live on lending you money and getting the same money back. They live on the debt that you accumulate through the interest charges they put on your, your loans. So they're standardizing every country they go into. And then UNESCO is the first ones in under the UN too to make sure that one generation, the first generation, is taught in their schools and they give all the Western ideas to be democratic. Democratic, as I say, is just the greatest front ever devised for fascism. It truly is. It, it even began off, as I say, in, in ancient Greece with really fascists at the top uh, using democracy to build a world empire and start up a League of Nations, the first League of Nations, which they then dominated. And then they got a, everybody into a central banking system there too in ancient times. While the top uh, bunch of hereditary uh, aristocracy who pretty well owned most of the stuff uh, benefited enorm enormously from all these wars that they had and the conquest and plunder that they could get out of it too. Nothing changes in this world, really. And the bankers of ancient times, I think it was, I think it was, um, Mark Twain put it pretty, pretty well. He said, he said, in ancient times, he said, uh, different peoples looked around for different ways of gaining power and prestige amongst themselves and other peoples. And some did it by war, as I say, becoming the, the, the general and getting all the praise, etc. 
Others did it through other means. Um, it said, but the bankers really uh, realized that money was the key. Everybody worshipped money, even the generals. They needed money to get their wars going, even in ancient times to the present. Can't do a darn thing without money. And uh, and that was the king of all, you see. Money was the kingpin of all. So certain peoples dedicated themselves to being the money lenders. And it hasn't changed today. That's still the kingpin. Money is a key to everything that runs this particular system. It doesn't have to be. It certainly doesn't have to be. But it's the only way we've been allowed to, to be taught uh, that it is. This is the only thing there is. We're taught. And we have been for a couple of thousand years in the Western world. And religion helped that too, because even the big church needed money coming in from the peasants. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Just talking a little bit about the history of money in itself, very just very briefly touching on it. And it, they always say it's a means of exchange, a medium of exchange. But many things can be, basic bartering is a medium of exchange too. You barter a sack of oats for a sack of lentils or whatever else you decide to, to barter. And it's up to really to, the only honest trading there can be is when two people exchange their sacks of whatever and decide upon what's worth what half a bag for this, for a whole bag of that, or whatever they want to do. Because price, remember, is an idea. It's not fixed in stone. It doesn't come from heaven. It's it's just someone's idea to see how how much they can gouge off you generally, and to see how you go for it. And that's why in the Middle East, for instance, and Asia, haggling is really a way of life. People are taught to haggle. In fact, they have no respect for you if you don't haggle. So. Um, that really is what's about. A price is just someone's idea. But of course, we're not taught any of that when we grow up, and especially in the Western world, we're taught to just walk into a store and you buy, and the, that's the price, and you, that's it, and you use this thing called money. And when I was small, I can remember asking uh, my folks, I says, because I was, I was talking about needing a pay raise every year, you see, and you say, well, why do you get a pay raise? And they'd say, well, because it's customary you get one every year. I says, well, why is it customary? And they just, because uh, they never thought about it themselves. They'd always give you that answer to give children. They'd say, well, it's because it just is, that's why. And then you'd see that uh, the prices of everything, your little bar of chocolate went up every year. And everything else went up every year. And that's why you had to get a pay increase every year. And so it told me that there were different sides, different factions working together to make sure that everything went up every year. But when what you learn later on is that they have this thing called inflation, which is supposedly due to overprinting money uh, and put, putting too money out, too much cash out there amongst the public, which doesn't make any sense to me either. I didn't see why that should make any price go up or down. But, uh, of course, the economists that really are, are another form of voodoo, uh, to be honest with you, and some economists have left. They've even done documentaries years ago on the, on the BBC where top um, eco- economists and professors had left the profession saying it was a lot of nonsense. And they said a truth, which was, if we understood what we were doing, we would never end up in these messes. 
And isn't that the truth? But you see, with banking and money being a, a fixed thing in society and taught from generation to genera- generation as being as normal as air, no one questions it. But those guys at the top who deal with it and the big bankers, I'm talking about the ones who distribute to uh, the central banks, which they can create, actually. The central banks are, are private banks, but they create them or they make sure their boys are in there and create them. They run the countries and they run the economies and they lend to government. Every government supposedly at one time had its own ability to mint its own coin. And they didn't need extra bankers to do it. They, they would buy the gold and all the rest of it, then they'd mint it, and then they would sell it off to some of the other banks. And the banks would re- regain extra cash by loaning it out then. That's how it used to work. But when they did away with anything to back it up with, then the sky was the limit for the international bankers. Because really what they give a, a, a central bank is permission to print up cash and uh, and and then distribute. But the central bank, through the government, through a deal with the government, must then uh, pay the central bankers back, who probably just gave them a check, uh, pay them back with real goods or real wealth. That's not a bad deal, isn't it? If I give you a piece of paper and permission... Uh, but you would give me, well, half your country if you default. You know, land for debt swap, something like that. That's not a bad deal at all. And yet we're all taught that this is somehow normal. And there's not one party in the world, left wing, right wing, up, down, whatever, that will ever challenge that and get into power. Never happen. You'll never see it in your lifetime. It will never happen. Because they're all handpicked by the same people and backed by the same people through various funding means and channeling their cash for their campaigns. They're bought and paid for uh, when they're even selected. Before you even hear their names, they're bought and paid for. And they will keep the same system going on behalf of the, man- the bankers. It's interesting, whenever a, a prime minister uh, of, uh, a, a, of Britain or a Commonwealth country, a British Commonwealth country, gets in, the first person he's got to go and see as the guy in charge of the bank, basically, the bank that he's going to go to to borrow money. Now, why are governments who are rolling in taxes of all kinds, taxes you don't even hear about because you're paying them all the time through everything you buy, through hidden taxes, and they're rolling in so much money, why do they have to go to these guys in the first place and borrow money? And they've got all that coming in. Why? And it's never, ever, ever explained to the public. And as I say, no person is going to run for office and ever go against that and stop that system and make the country itself responsible for creating its own money so that you don't have to go to outsiders or private banks to do so. It'd be quite simple. And that was the whole idea in the U.S., when they started it up, they knew the cons that were already going very, very old in their days of the banking systems of Europe. They understood it very well. And they did, they did not intend for a central bank to come in, a private bank to come in and do all their, their cash. That wasn't intended at all. But that was mandated by the moneylenders themselves who planned this world the future which we now live in, which is the present. Back with more after these messages.
are listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, just explaining some of the, the, the simplicity, really, of the con of money and governments, too, which are simply extensions now of the banking system. And the, the banking system ensures that the top members of the parties are all members of uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. That way it doesn't matter who gets in. Uh, they, they will be faithful to their masters. Because as I said at the beginning of the show, the bankers who sat around with Cecil Rhodes and Rothschild and then the Milner Group, Milner Group were, were all bankers initially. They became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a private organization that literally decides the world's, they have the biggest think tanks advising all governments on everything. So they would take over the political system, of course, which they did. They've owned it for well over a hundred years and of every country. And Quigley admitted that too for the U.S. And they would also make sure that the political boys would go hand in glove and work with these incoming central bankers and establish the same system across the world. And that's what they've been doing up to the present. And as they amalgamate and amalgamate not just the banks uh, to centralize banks, to a conglomeration of centralized banks, they put them into the big bank, like the one they've got in Europe now, now that they've got the whole of Europe together in a block. And Karl Marx also talked about this because he really worked for the same boys. If you, whether you like it or not, he worked for the same boys. He wanted a controlled society where the, the stupid people, you know, the, the masses would be guided by the intellectual ones who knew better how to do things. Same as the bankers, no difference whatsoever. It was just a faster way to, to make the public conform into a new system. And that's why he was based in London and financed through certain parties uh, for his manifesto, although his name didn't even appear in it until much later. As I say, the bankers truly believe they understand how the world runs and that they're the best ones for the job. That's why there's a famous uh, statement by one of the Rockefellers who, I think it was after a Bilderberger meeting, um, on the one hand, he thanked all the newspapers for going along with them and never mentioning what happened at the meetings, Secrecy was important. They could never got this far without their help, etc., etc. Because you see, all the top guys in newspapers and journalism are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. But he also said that it was far preferable that bankers and an intelligentsia uh, should basically rule the world, organize and rule the world, rather than leave it to uh, independent sovereign nations uh, making their own destiny and causing conflict on the way. That's how they rationalized it, through, through consolidation and using economies as the big stick and economics as the big stick and debt as the big stick. Uh, they could rule the world much easier with less uh, fallout. And uh, that's what's been happening today. Uh, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and I think Chile as well and a few other countries have to come in under the big North American bloc because Karl Marx talked about Europe being the first bloc they'd create followed by the American bloc and they were also going to have a, an Asian Pacific Rim bloc and that's what we have today. If you read Professor Carl Quigley's book, uh, The Anglo-American Establishment and um, tragedy and hope, you'll get the whole history of this group. 
and how they set it up. The names are all documented too, the meetings they attended, the operative agents they sent out across the world, generally their own sons or the bankers actually, initially, and how they set up their, their the same system in every country using the British Commonwealth system as the embryo for world government. And that's what they were to build on was the British system. And that's why you have today this Anglo-American alliance. It's, called, it's often called different names that are special relationship, etc. And that's why whenever Britain invades a country, the U.S. goes in with it and vice versa. There's no questions asked. They're already signed in a pact to do so. So that's really what's happening today is we're going through a shake-up to terrify the public more than anything else, to be honest with you. Um, to accept a new type of system. The boys at the top of politics in every country know darn well what's going on. They know what the next phase is to be, consolidation, and with the World Bank, IMF, and so on. But they have to play the game. This is to, be, this is to teach the public just to accept this new system. And as the bankers get richer off the new system, in a world they decided... Um, would cut back on resources, they still want the same profits and bigger profits, so they invent something called carbon taxes, energy taxes, and so on. So all the money that you used to have to purchase things with will go back in fees and so on now. Fees and taxes, that's how the bankers will stay incredibly rich and stay on top of the whole world system and still run it for the next God knows how long. You see, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. And all this is on a thing, as I say, called money. Something that the major religions uh, use. They had no problems using the money. Uh, it's interesting the Catholic Church forbids usury amongst Christians. But that really left a, a gaping hole for non-Christians, as we all know, to come in and fill that gap. And they were allowed to use usury. So naturally they ended up on top of the financial system. That's only common sense, isn't it? But because they used uh, money for the Catholic Church, they wanted to have tithes, etc., and to build big fancy monuments and uh, have wonderful robes for archbishops and so on. Then they wanted money to flow in through donations and contributions and tithing and all the rest of it and build lots of nice places in Rome, which they did. And then the Protestants came in, and really the Protestants were updated for a new type of model uh, of, of even working for a... Uh, an industrial system, a heavy industry system, as opposed to an agricultural system. That's why, really, the Protestant sects were, were, were invented. And I say invented because I really think they were for that purpose, for the money boys behind them. You know, we think, we think in such small time spans, and a youngster will think that life's going to be eternal. You're, you're always going to look like this, You'll never get old. Older folk are a different species to you. You can't imagine getting old. You live for the, for the moment and the day, and that's it. Uh, and yet you're impatient for anything. You want something, you want it now, or you start building something, you want to see it finish very quickly. And because of that, you're, you've trapped yourself already in a mindset. You don't realize, and this is true too, as Professor Quigley said himself, that the big boys set up foundations, and each foundation has its own mandate to accomplish a set goal, which might take a 100 to 150, 200 years, and they'll hire and retire and hire and train and retire generations to accomplish that goal. So they do get what they want. 
and they can work generations, just like the old stonemasons. That's often why they use the terminology of masonry into Freemasonry. Uh, they, they, they use generations of stonemasons making the big cathedrals in medieval Europe. And the ones right up to the very end, only the ones at the end saw the finished product. Some of them took six generations, seven generations that never saw it. They all built towards it. They called it a great work, which is what Freemasonry uses for the world as well. So everyone gets fooled at different levels. They have used groups, have used revolutionary groups as well, down through the centuries to make this all happen. Because money cannot simply get it all done by itself. It needs groups, it needs political groups to work for it. To sign legal agreements, then they'll say, well, you see, we're in it now, we've joined the union now, we can't get out now. See, it's in writing, it's a law. And we all go with that too, thinking like, well, that's, it's like something written in st- Even if it is written in stone, break the stone. I mean, you know. Moses broke the first set of stones he brought down the hill. We don't think about that. But now your politicians tell you, no, it's, we can't go back on that. That's breaking the law or breaking the treaty. And Well, if something's not working, you fix it. Obviously. So what we really need is a new way of thinking about things altogether. And it has to be a different system than the ones that's being pushed out for us to follow by what we are taught to be to think of as experts. Just keep in mind that the plan that we're going through today was, was probably envisaged a hundred years ago. This part of it too. We need a different system altogether. And nations, number one. See, if, you, if you're if you in your own local area, in medieval days, it's a good way to go back to the medieval times. Even the tradesman, a journeyman, was called a journeyman because... A tradesman could only go to, to work in a place or a house or an estate in a day's journey from where he lived. That was the distance you covered in a day. You call it a journeyman. But you could also attend local meetings with things that mattered in your little area. And you could have a direct say. That was the only true democracy you could have. Anything outside that area, you didn't really have any say in at all. You didn't even know what was going on. And that's why nations were so great, when they federalized nations. That's why the U.S. itself was a big experiment with different states within this, this big continent. Because they knew if something got too big, then it was out of the grasp of the people living in a particular state. When you have a remote central government somewhere, believe you me, they have, they have very little in common with you. They certainly won't have the lifestyle you, that, that you have in common because uh, the central, uh, that the capital is where all the big boys live, the rich and wealthy who deal with, you know, the big problems, etc. Stuff, of course, that benefits them very well. But really, they don't care about your, your plumbing system in the town of so-and-so or anything else. They just want taxes off you. When you end up conglomerating these countries into whole regions like they're doing with Europe, and they have done with Europe, you're even further from them. You have no say at all. You feel helpless. It's outside your control. You may as well as basing the head of the EU in Beijing. Because it's distance. once you get past a certain distance away, it doesn't matter how far away it is or put it on Pluto. And the people at the head of the European Commission are then into their own particular world, cut off from all of you. And there's no way they can manage the problems in your local area at all, or, or do they care to? Disastrous. This is a disastrous thing to do. 
And yet none of the countries were given a say in this. None of the countries were given a say. When countries were voted, they voted not to join the Union, they were threatened, cajoled, they gave them many recessions and all the rest of it, and kept coming back and back and back until they voted it right. Either that they fudged the vote, which of course is a normal thing to do as well. But that's the reality of the world we live in. And once, of, uh, during the, the free trade negotiations, which was the precursor of the NAFTA, the North American free trade negotiations, they discussed a central government for the Americas. And all the prime ministers and the president of the U.S. attended these meetings. And they said at the time that they'd base it in Montreal. That's what they wanted. They were supposed to be finished with the amalgamation of the economics, the taxation system, the customs duties, the intelligence services, the police services by this year. This is the final year to sign the last integration deal. And that's take place shortly, in fact, I believe. And then we'll see what comes out of that. But they might even use this big deal with the IMF and uh, uh, the, the planned crisis with all the bubbles, which they made sure were going to happen. They could have kept the bubbles going for another 20 years. They'd always done it before without a problem. When they crash the system, it's because they want to change it to the next phase now. And that's what we're seeing, and a guarantee they'll bring up. It's better if we integrate the Americas. See, we can't manage our loan anymore. We've got to compete with Europe. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible. Before, you know, people could live fairly independently within their own country. But no, now you're told you're going to compete with Europe and China as you race to the bottom, trying to compete with each other. How can you compete with the labor of China? And yet economists put this crap out in the media for us every so often. And where's the, where's the loudest cry coming from? The CFR. Telling us, oh, we've got to do this. Well, I don't fancy competing with the peasant in China. It's impossible. So we're going into a new system. Bit by bit, we're being trained into it and scared into it. You always use fear, you see, then offer the solution. And the solution was always the goal in the first place. And we always accept because we're given no choice. At least we think we're given no choice. That's how your politicians will present it to you. Now, they've picked Greece uh, for the poor man of Europe as a, an example to start with, to terrify the rest of Europe, to, to panic and go along with the IMF on everything. There's an article in The Guardian there. It says, UK budget deficit to surpass Greece's as the worst in the EU. So why did they pick on Greece? Hmm? It's not because they're not too afraid of Greece. That's why. That's why. And Greece doesn't have enough members, you know, big boys in the big club that Britain does. You know, the very old families, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's, that's from Wednesday, May the 5th. This is uh, the European Commission forecast for the UK budget deficit is higher than Alistair Darling's. Whoever wins the election must make sorting out the public finances the top priority. The European Commission warned on the eve of the poll as it predicted the British budget deficit would swell this year to become the biggest in the European Union, overtaking even Greece. Would this have happened if Britain had joined the Union? Do you know that Britain pays hundreds of billions of dollars a year now? 
or millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to the European Union Central Bank. On top of paying all the dough to their own central bank, that's all part of it. Wouldn't they be better off if they didn't have to pay that extra now to, to the European Union? Wouldn't France be the same or any other countries be the same or Spain be the same? So how come all these things are always going to be better for us and end up apparently disasters for us? It's not bad planning. Never ever mistake it as bad. The boys at the top know exactly what they're doing. Incredible. And then you have uh, articles galore. I've got so many I won't even read them. But here's one here. It says, crisis, what crisis? The Economic Union demands Britain and other countries pay it £7 billion more in a 6% budget boost. They want more money coming, even though they have to pay £176 already to the EU this year. They want £7 billion more. For who? For the commission at the top of the EU. The guys who want the big, big cars, you know, and so on. That was the 29th of April, 2010, from the Mail Online. It says here, the European bureaucrats last night brushed aside the economic crisis. Yeah, they can do that, quite simply, isn't it? And announced plans for an astonishing 6% budget increase. That's for all the member countries. Amazing, isn't it? This is the pointed out that increases come despite the fact that auditors have refused to sign off the Commission's accounts for 15 years in a row because of concerns about fraud. And the guys are demanding it, this European Commission at the top, the secretive bunch, won't even show you the books or where the money's been for the last 15 years. It's all corrupt, folks. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, just talking about the nonsense of of um, the present crash and so on and bubbles and all that nonsense. As I say, they've had bubbles forever. It just depends when they want to burst them. And it's strange how many folk had had a few years of knowledge when it was going to happen and they could then make all their bets on what would fall and collapse. And, and they made a lot of money off it too. Something that's way above our heads, you see. We're not, again, we're, we're taught to be linear thinkers and simplistic in our thinking because linear thinking really is not natural at all. It's not natural whatsoever, linear thinking. We, there's so many variables we don't even look at or even think they're there. We have no notice of them at all. That's how the big boys can do what they do to you. But the big bankers, as I say, that formed the Milner Group, that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, where it combined with the Rhodes Society and the Rothschilds, is so interesting to study because you find that Milner himself uh, was given a partnership. He's offered a partnership with the Morgan boys, the big Morgan company, and uh, he found it safer and better for their, for their world enterprise that they're embarking on to become the head of a few different banks. One became Barclays and a few other big ones. So the bankers themselves were the Milner Group, which were the big boys at the top of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and really nothing's changed. They're the head of the CFR in the U.S. And 
they also, you'll find these big banks also run the pharma industries. This, they go hand in glove down through the centuries. Money, debt, lending. Uh, they run the commercial systems. They own commercial systems. The fleets of ships and so on. Uh, but they also run pharma. They've done that for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's interesting that the U.S. and every other country was gouged for all these useless and, and dangerous, actually, flu vaccines for a non-existent flu, which they got their newspapers, which they own as well, to hype out of all proportion to terrify the public. And they, they gouged us over and over. It's getting raped one, over and over again. Raped over and over again. That's what we are. And these boys do it as a way of living. It's their nature to do this. And, of course, they use their same group, with the Rockefeller boys in the U.S. and other ones in Britain to direct the pharma industry since they own it. And here's an article here. It's a very good article by MinPost. The ex-editor of the New England Journal of Medicine tells how big pharma has corrupted academic institutions. Now, I told you they run academia now. They run all academia and political correctness and all the trends that come out of academia are given to them to push. They have the professors, the selected professors, and they get into the heads of the students and give them their ideas to run with. And that's what happens. In the May-June issue of the Boston Review, Dr. Marcia Angel a former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, details the sordid story of how corporate dollars have corrupted research and education at academic medical centers, including at her current place of employment, the Harvard Medical School. The article is adapted from a talk she gave at Harvard last December. Angel, of course, has written about this topic many times before, most notably in her 2004 book, The Truth About the Drug Companies. And then she goes on, and tells you how they did it and how they're doing it and so on. Very good article. It's a good book, I'm sure, to read too. I'll try and get a hold of it myself. But again, it only confirms what you already really know. The bankers, even the, even the Rothschilds, buyer company is theirs. They, they all have their pharma companies and front ones too under different names. And we're gouged over in every way possible. Wars, drugs, plagues, etc., that's their world. And we, we want it to go on. We want them to save us. Really? That's what your politicians will tell you. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.